0: Years ago, a friend of mine worked for an industrial supplier, a building, building contractor supply store. And because he was a friend of mine, I said, well, why don't we have, we'll, 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 whenever I need something for the church like that, I'll come to you. And really, I, I would get two things from him during the year. One time I would get some things to fix fix the stage. We used to have this old stage, and so I would buy bolts that were replacement bolts. And then the only other thing I would buy from him would be this hundred foot long plastic sheeting that they use at construction sites, but we used for something called the slip and slide, also known as the slip and bleed uh, when you're a youth pastor. And so I, don't, I wouldn't call him all the time, but I would call him and then I'd call my friend and I'd just call him just to check on him. And so I could always just kind of, and I'm going to use this real name because he's not here, but I would, I would, you know, call him up and fasten all, this is Jesse, how am I help you? And i say, Jesse, this is Paul. Hey, what's going on? So then, you know, he would always, whatever we needed, he was there. And he would, he would get it, whatever it was, he would bring it here to church. It was great. If I had to go pick it up from the place, it was there. It was ready. It was great. And then a little while later, he said, Now listen, I'm going to hire, I'm hiring on a guy. We're expanding. I'm going to need to go out in, into the field a little bit. I'm going to need to go to some work sites and some places and check on some customers. So I'm hiring a guy to run the office while I'm out. I was like, That's great. And so my first interaction with this started like this pick up the phone, call. Fast and all this is Jason. How may I help you? Jason's Jesse there? No, he is not. Well, can you put us down for the plastic sheeting that we buy once a year from you guys? I'm sure you already have it in the. No problem. Click. You know what happened next? Jason did not take care of anything. I don't even know what he did, but he just it just kind of didn't even happen. So I call back up there. Bring Fast and all this is Jason. He might as well said. Fasten all this. Jason, I'm fixing to forget everything you're getting ready to tell me. You know, and so I called I call Jesse on his cell phone. I'm like, Jesse, what's going on? He's like, what happened? What do you need? I said, I need my stuff. We do it once a year. It's coming. He's like, did it not get ordered? I just called up there and I talked to Jason and he doesn't have it for me. So finally, he, you know, Jesse has to come and sit down. I don't know what the talk was. Jesse and Jason talked. The next thing I called up and he's Fast and all this is Jason and I'm gonna write down what you tell me. And I'm like, oh my God. But isn't it, isn't it awesome that we worship a Lord that is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? And 1 John 2.1 tells us that he sits there at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. Romans 8.34 and 35 say, who will, who will condemn us? Who will accuse us? Will God the Father know? Will Christ? know? He sits at the right hand of God the Father on our behalf, interceding for us. So that the minute we, for all intents and purposes, call up the Lord, for a minute, all intents and purposes, when we pray, we're praying to one who is there on our behalf, listening to every word we say. And we know from Romans chapter 8, taking our feeble prayers, not even praying the right thing, and the Holy Spirit, through that power, interprets it to God And Christ is there interceding for us on our behalf. So as we get to this part of the creed, this is probably a part of the creed that you don't think about a lot. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge and the living and the dead, and you, you think about those parts, and he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, coming to judge the quick and the dead. Probably those things on a day-to-day basis we don't really think about, and we've got to ask the question, how does ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and coming again to judge the living and the dead? Or if you're like me and you're in, in Catholic church, I mean, excuse me, the, well Catholics and, and, and the Methodists, but the quick and the dead, I mean I was always like, well if you're slow, you're pretty good, you're going to be all right, but the quick and the dead, they're, they're the ones that are going to be in trouble. But if we jump into this text and we look at Acts, let's just, let's just jump right into this part right here before we get anywhere else. But right here in the beginning of it, we've got to remember that Acts starts out right here in one. This is 40 days after the resurrection. So right here we're at 40 days post-resurrection. Christ has been going around. Christ has been revealing himself to people. He's been revealing himself to his disciples. Uh, Paul says later on in the epistles that he revealed himself to as many as 500 people at one time. And so he was there and you got to realize that Acts is a bridge Acts is a bridge book. It's a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles, and it's what happens. It it could be called Acts, the continuing work of Christ through his church. Acts, the continuing ministry of Jesus through his disciples who then built the church. And so we jump right in here and we look at verse 6, and verse 6 in the text starts out innocuously, and we think to ourselves that the disciples are just asking this question, you know, and and, and, oh, well, the disciples. Verse 6 is possibly one of the biggest Spotlights into how boneheaded and dumb the disciples actually are. First of all, when they ask him, Jesus, are you going to reestablish your kingdom? You and I need to realize that there was no point and there never has been a point where Jesus has not been king. Jesus was king on earth, he was king in heaven, he was king on the cross, and he's king resurrected here, and he's getting ready to be king ascended. So his his kingdom has never gone away. His kingdom has always been, there's never been a place where he's not been king. But also in Jesus' three earthly years of ministry, public ministry, he never once talked at all about reestablishing the theocracy that would have been the nation of Israel in that way. The disciples still can't keep holding on to this, this, this notion that that's what it's going to be. It's going to be this wealth. It's going to be this power. These people, that, first it was the Babylonians and the Persians. Well, before, before that, the Egyptians, of course, and now the Romans. And, and when are we going to overthrow them? And time and time again, Jesus has said, this is a kingdom of the heart. You know, and what does he do? He, when the paralytic is there, he doesn't say, get up and walk. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. He's come again and again to talk about this kingdom, but this kingdom is still something that they have not quite grasped. And so in verse 7, Jesus basically, in a sense, says, listen, be content with what is revealed to you. Let, the, let your learning keep track with what the teacher actually is revealing to you. The rest, you got to leave up to God. And so in verse 8, then he begins to talk to them about what's getting ready to happen. And these are the important parts of the ascension. And so he explains to them very, very plainly, listen, the power of the church is not going to be how you feel about me. The power of the church is not going to be, you know, just this idea that, you know, you are strong together. The power of the church is through the Holy Spirit. The church is going to be empowered through the Holy Spirit. My kingdom is a kingdom that is. But you are not going to sit back and just watch my kingdom. My Holy Spirit is going to empower you to spread my kingdom. And you are going to be empowered to be my witnesses. The word witness occurs either in in the verb form or the noun form in the book of Acts 29 times. And actually the word witness is where you and I get our English word martyr from. They were martyred for Jesus. They were martyred for witnessing. They were martyred for being a representative of Christ and sharing it. And then he says, these words in verse 8 are indicative. He says, Jerusalem and Judea. And you just kind of go, well, yeah, of course, Jerusalem and Judea. But before we go any further, you've got to realize he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses. And you and I might as well say, you are going to be my martyrs at the seat of power among those who just crucified me. Remember, what's Jerusalem and Jer- Judea? Jerusalem and Judea is the hot seat of Jewish high council and, and religious leadership. You're going to go in there and you're going to be my witnesses. But then he says also, then he says, Samaria. You're going to go to Samaria. Why Samaria? Samaria, close in geographical proximity, but couldn't be farther away in blasphemous understanding of God. Samaritans, Samaritans were kind of like a modern day or, or, or an ancient day Haiti, where Haitians have taken Catholicism and animism and come into this very strange kind of voodoo, weird You know, they call it centuria and things like that. Well, Samaritans had taken Judaism and mixed it with idol worship, and you kind of had this strange thing. He said, those people that are geographically close to us but couldn't be any farther away from us in terms of their religious thought, you're going to go there and be my witnesses. And then when he says, to the ends of the earth, the disciples, you can just kind of imagine, just kind of all of a sudden the jaw drops. Because what was he saying? To the Gentiles. To the ones who, in the Old Testament, you could not even go into their home. You could not even associate with them. Yes, you're going to go and be my martyrs to them. So my kingdom will not just be here. My kingdom is not going to be something that you can lay back and just go, hey, hey, have your kingdom come. But the Holy Spirit is going to empower you and you're going to go out to build my kingdom. You're not going to do something that's impossible. I'm going to empower you through my Holy Spirit. And so then in Luke chapter, I mean, excuse me, in, in, in chapter 1, verses 9, it happens something that also is occurs in what Jesus prophesies or talks about in Luke 21 7. The ascension. He ascends up into heaven. And it's something that happens publicly, not secretly. It happens publicly, not secretly. Now, if Jesus had been appearing to the disciples, and you realize that right after what we read last week, after, after he appears to Mary, Mary Magdalene, he appears to Peter and John. Not Peter and John, but he was there. They just didn't see him. He then walks through the door in a room, a locked door, where they are. Well, what if you know, all these times he'd been appearing, just one day, they just didn't see him. And the next day came, and the next day came, and the next day came, and the next day came. And they didn't see him. Well, what happened to him? But the ascension happens publicly so that they will know where he is just as he said. It's just like in the Old Testament that happened in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This talks about it as well. And that he disappeared into a cloud also is this veiling of the Shekinah glory of God. And it's indicative also of how, it's a precursor of how he's going to return again. He's going to return in the clouds. So he disappeared in the cloud. He's going to return in the cloud. And that's in Luke 21, 27. And so you'll see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds. then in verse 10, like I said before, it's not touched by an angel. It's gently rebuked by an angel. Two angels show up. Now, verse 11, they they address these men as men of Galilee. Now, that's important because essentially what they are saying is, we know you. You don't know us, but we know you. It's kind of like Bill Parker lives out in a part of town that you and I don't really talk about a lot. It's called Plateau, even though everyone knows it's spelled plateau. But when, you, when you're in Catawba County, we take everything and make it redneck. So if, I, if, if Bill didn't even know that I knew him, and, and all of a sudden I walked up and said, man of Plataw, he'd go, whoa, you know something about me. And so they say, men of Galilee, we know you. You don't know us, but we know you. We know all about you. He has been taken up to heaven. He's been taken to heaven. Now, the first part about that, this is, goes exactly back to what we were talking about with Mary Magdalene, where Jesus says, don't hold on to me. And so what this, the angels are also saying right now is cease to hold on to the notion that you're going to get to have Jesus like you had him for the last three years of his public ministry. It's not going to be like that anymore. He is in heaven. He is not here with you bodily present like that. They're, but they we're going to talk about this when we talk about the Holy Spirit. But also heaven, then again, there is a measure of distance. There's a measure of distance. Go ahead and get over this idea that you're going to have Jesus. You're not going to see him like you did before. But then they get this other part. But he will return. He will return. And so this gives an expectant hope to them to wait on. And it gives them comfort. But also, Jesus, when he says, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses, he's not saying, just wait for my return. He's saying, work faithfully for me, empowered through my Holy Spirit, because I go to be with my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And I sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding on your behalf. And so again, I come back to that Romans eight thirty four and thirty five. Who will accuse us or condemn us before God? Will God the Father know? He's the one that sent His Son. Will Christ know? He sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us on our behalf.
1: You can go ahead and put that other slide up there. Thank you. Up until about a couple of years ago, the Sunday after Easter. Was celebrated at Corinth for two decades as Holy Humor Sunday, and it was always uh, kind of a stressful time. And a lot of us were out of town, and there was a lot more more work to do. And some people loved it, and some people said, "Please get rid of that." And uh, so that's okay. I, but I was th- thinking this morning when I've been out of town all week and uh, trying to put together a few details. And I texted Pastor Paul, and I said, "I feel really pressured today, getting ready for Sunday." But it could be worse. We could be having Holy Humor Sunday so uh... but I, I had to throw in something in here that you know would, would would give you a little bit of me a little bit of nostalgia about holy humor sunday so this past week i was thinking that this whole thing about jesus leaving ascending for the disciples must have been kind of their worst day ever experience you say well, wasn't the crucifixion the worst day ever yeah but you know two days later he's back and you know all that is forgotten and forgiven but now he's leaving and it's for good. I mean, he's kind of told them this is it. You're not seeing me anymore. I'm gone. And uh, so then I googled this past week, worst day ever, and came up with a few uh, little. Well, I only brought one picture to show you. So in honor of Holy Humor Sunday, think about you know Pastor Amy and all the team that went to Nicaragua the day before you get on the plane, and uh, you get your passport out. It's ready to go. And this worst day ever slide is, uh, you know, a reminder of the worst that could happen the day before you're getting ready to go on the trip, and this happens here. Okay, let me see if I've got this up here. Okay, just take a moment and let that sink in here, and how much you love your dog, and how dead your dog is getting ready to be. So all of your plans have suddenly changed. So like, you know, back in the days of Holy Humor Sunday, we might do that kind of thing for a whole hour. And so you can thank the Lord that you only had to see one slide. But the point is that this is a really powerful moment in uh, the gospel. And it is, as Pastor Paul said, something that we often tend to overlook. We are going through the Apostles' Creed in three different segments because there are three uh, paragraphs to the Apostles' Creed. We started the beginning of the year, I believe, in God the Father Almighty. We took a little break. Uh, We talked about the Sermon on the Mount, if you were here. And then during Lent, we have been talking about Jesus, the second paragraph of the Creed. So just a little bit of a reminder uh, as we've covered Jesus. So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. He is the incomparable one. He is the one and only son of God. I believe that he is our Lord The word Lord has lots of meanings, but the one that uh, the creed seems to have in mind is what the apostle Paul had in mind. He is equal to God. He is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He He experienced everything that you and I experienced. Jesus was a zygote inside Mary's womb. He was an embryo. Jesus was a toddler. Jesus was a little boy. He was a teenager. He was a friend. He was a, a a worker, a laborer. Jesus was a son. He was a brother. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. And then he was, um, this is all, you know, the, so the creed jumps from there all the way to his suffering. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, the greatest suffering ever was inflicted on the best human ever to live for the greatest good possible. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. It frames our suffering and gives meaning to it. And then he was crucified, dead, and buried. What matters in the gospel is not so much his physical suffering. Very little attention is paid to that. Uh, What matters is why he suffered, that he suffered for us, that he took the physical and spiritual consequences of our sin. Jesus paid it all for us, And then he descended into hell. He took our hell in every sense of the word, but one, uh, one interpretation of this part of the creed, and not everybody agrees, is that Jesus actually went to Hades, the place of the dead, and he emptied it of all believers who were there so that you and I would never have to go there. We go directly to be in the presence of God when we die. And then the third day, he rose again from the dead. He triumphed over sin and death. Mary Magdalene tried to hold on to him because she was holding on to what she knew of him. And he was very different. And what he said to her is, I am going to my father. I'm ascending to my father and your father. And so that's where we pick up today. So now we've covered that part of the creed. And in way less time than any of these topics deserve, we're going to go now to these three aspects of um, Jesus' sort of close out the creed, and we call them the ascension, the session, and the return of the second coming of Christ. So let's talk about them uh, uh, one at a time, just um, sort of go back through the text again and talk about how the book of Acts shows this to us, but actually what does this mean for us. So when the disciples asked Jesus, Uh, at what time are you going to return uh, the kingdom? Or is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? If you look in your bulletin on the left-hand side, there's a quote by John Calvin who says, there are as many errors in their question as words. They don't understand the kingdom. They don't understand the timing. They don't understand themselves. And they don't understand God when they ask that question. Now now think about this for a moment. These people have spent three years with Jesus, and he has taught them about the kingdom. You know those parables and those stories, but without giving us the details, Luke actually tells us that after Jesus came back from the dead, he spent the next 40 days explaining to them about the kingdom of God and what it is, And he was, uh, you know, proving to them that I'm back, and this is what the kingdom is. And the last thing they ask him is, oh, is this now the time? Like, you're coming in power and glory, and you're going to make everything right again? Like, they still don't get it. And it would take them a long time before they would understand and grasp it. So... (laughs) The text actually says they kept asking this. It's the imperfect tense in Greek, which means they kept pestering him about this. It didn't just ask once. They kept asking until finally got this answer. It reminds me of when my brother's kids were little. And you know when your kids are little and you're driving down the highway and they're going like, when are we going to get there? Are we almost there yet? Everybody, every parent has had that. Are we almost there yet? So my brother said one time he came up with a brilliant solution. He said, he said to his young son, he said, see those mile markers along the road? Like, we're at 286 right now. When we get to 523, we'll be there. You can actually follow how close we are. Great solution, What? right? Except he said it was the longest trip they ever took because his son pointed out every single mile marker. Dad, we're at 287 now. Look, there's 288. And after a while, that gets kind of old. So the disciples have the same kind of impatience. Apparently, impatience is not deeply bred into the human soul and psyche. And they keep asking, is this the time now? Are we there yet? Are we at the kingdom of God? And no. And in response to that, Jesus says, it's not time for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And then he ascends. So the worst day ever, he leaves right after he says that to them. He's gone. But the worst day ever becomes the best day ever. It takes the disciples a while to figure out that where Jesus has gone and what he's doing is the best possible place he could be, the best possible advocacy he could make for them. So his ascension turns out to be another step in his glorification. Christians tend to think the resurrection is the big thing, right? It's the greatest uh, thing ever that happened to Jesus and therefore to us. The Bible actually doesn't treat it that way. We come to church on Easter Sunday in larger numbers than any other time. We have more songs we sing. We get more celebration, more joy out of Resurrection Day. And it's a fantastic day. Don't misunderstand me. But there are three more stages in the glory of Jesus that the creed is wise enough to remind us of. And one of them is is he has actually left the earth. Why is that such great news? Because as I said last week, if he stays on the earth, he can only be in one place at one time. As the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, he has now returned to the place of his, with his father. The apostle Paul says, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. This is actually better than the resurrection itself, that Jesus has ascended into his father's glory. And so that's terrific news, and then it follows with the next part, which uh, Jesus doesn't really explain in much detail here, but I get it when the disciples are kind of gawking up, like they're just looking up. Jesus goes into a cloud, and they're just looking up. What what are they expecting, that he's going to come back out of the cloud? They're just looking up, and that's when they get this mild rebuke from the angels. Why are you looking up? And we'll come back to what the angels say later, but their their minds are racing thinking, where is he gone and what is he going to do that's more important than being down here with us? And this is where the creed goes to a phrase that Jesus himself introduced. Twice, Jesus spoke about being at the right hand of the Father. Do you remember what they were? The first time was on Tuesday before he died when the, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. And every, you know, trap question they asked him, he, was, he sort of uh, blew them away by his answer and he silenced them. They wanted to trap him because they wanted to find a reason to kill him. And they couldn't do it. But Jesus knew it was time to die, so Jesus decided to give them their reason to kill him. Tuesday before he dies, he's on the Temple Mount. And Jesus says to them, uh, who is the Messiah supposed to be? Whose son is he supposed to be? And they say, well, he's supposed to be the son of David. And then Jesus quotes from a well-known psalm of David, Psalm 110, and he says, well, then why does David say this, the Lord said to my Lord, who's he talking to? sit at my right hand. So that's the first place that Jesus sort of introduces this idea that David is saying to someone that you're going to have this place of honor and power. Jesus introduces that in all three Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the Synoptic Gospels. The second time Jesus uses this phrase is, again, remember they're trying to find a reason to kill him. So it's the morning before he dies, He's on trial. Most of the time he won't say anything, but he finally needs to give them their reason because he needs to die. And they say to him, are you the Messiah or not? Tell us plainly. And he says, I am. And you will see me at the Father's right hand. And they go like, that's all we need to know. We got you. Going to kill you. That's blasphemy. So Jesus introduces this idea himself but then every, God, every writer in the New Testament, except James and Jude, I think, all of the others all refer to this. You, you never thought about this being at God's right hand as being so important to the story. It's all over the New Testament. Starting with Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he says, You killed Jesus, but now he's at God's right hand. And then Stephen, when he's getting ready to die in Acts chapter 7, says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then Paul, three times in his letters, talks about what Jesus is doing there. In the, and Pastor Paul mentioned one of them when he says, He's interceding for you, He's praying for you right now. And then the writer of Hebrews, I'll, I'll, I'll quote from him again in a moment, but one of the passages from Hebrews where he talks about this is in the very beginning of the book when he's introducing who Jesus is, and the writer of Hebrews starts out by, let's see, I'm going to lose my place and lose what I said about this, but he talks about how this, this Jesus, who is better than anything that you have to offer, is now at the right hand of the Father. So this is so powerful for all of the New Testament to understand what this means. Now, what does it mean? Do you picture this as kind of like God's got this great big throne, and then there's kind of a junior throne over here for Jesus? Like, oh, how do you visualize this? And I just want to say that however you visualize it, it probably has some element of truth, and it's so far away from the actual glory. Everything, every depiction we have of heaven is in some way a metaphor. It's sort of, how can I get this idea into your feeble human brain with some image that's familiar to you? And this is one of them as well. So to sit down is a place of accomplishment. He's done. To, uh, to sit at a place of authority is to say, I'm in charge. And that's why Jesus is there. And the Apostle Paul also says, and when he's there, he's like looking out for you. He's talking to God about you. He's standing up for you. Yeah, she's a sinner, but I died for her. Yeah, he's messed up, but like I'm working through him. Jesus is interceding for you. And when something's on your heart that you can't handle, Jesus is going like, I'm praying for you. I'm going to get you through this. And this is all captured in this idea of Jesus seated at the right hand of God. So we call it the session because it's a word that just means sitting. It's an old English word. So theologically we say he's sitting there, he's done, he's accomplished, and while he's sitting there, he's working on your behalf. And then if that isn't enough glory, like he ascended to the glory of the Father, and he's sitting there at a place of honor and accomplishment, Then we get to the final piece of his glory that he will return to judge the living and the dead. And if it's true that it is uh, is written by almost every New Testament author that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, we can take the word almost out when it comes to the second coming. Every single New Testament writer. You almost can't flip a page on the New Testament without encountering the fact that Jesus will come again. We come back to Acts where the angels said to the disciples as they're looking up, why are you looking up? This same Jesus will come back in this same way. That's why we say we believe in the physical personal return of christ it's not just that in some spiritual sense he's going to come back and fix everything jesus will physically return to earth and make it right and this is our hope and our promise in the gospel well there's a powerful scripture text that we could have used instead of acts chapter one let me just refer it refer you to it briefly it is from hebrews chapter nine where the word appears appears three times in the text one time, it's in the, one time it's in the past tense. He appeared once so that he could make a sacrifice for your sins. And then now he is appearing before the Father on your behalf and he will appear a second time. What does the word appear mean to you? It means he shows up. Right? And when you needed your sins to be taken care of, he showed up. And when you need someone looking out for you right now before the Father, He shows up. And when the world can't get any worse or it can't get any better or whatever happens as things play out at the end, He will show up again. Wherever your need is, that's the character of Jesus that He shows up. And that's what I love about Acts 1.8. So let me just close with this uh, passage. Because what what, uh, Jesus says to the disciples is, you're going to receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. And the ascension and the session and the return of Christ all relate directly to that. Why are we witnesses? Because he ascended to the Father. We have to be his hands and feet and arms and mouth in places like Nicaragua, where our mission team has been this week, but all over in your community. He ascended to the Father. His physical presence through his body is us. And you say, well, Pastor Bob, I don't do that very well. I'm not a very good witness in my life or my words. And listen, Jesus is interceding for you. It's okay. Like all of your failures, they are covered by the fact that he is interceding for you. You don't have to live in guilt and wallow in shame. He's interceding for you. And when you need that power, you ask him and he helps you because he's at the Father's right hand praying for you right now. But listen, the task seems overwhelming. There's way too much to do. And Jesus says, but I will come again. Ultimately, it's on me to fix everything that happens in the world. There's a a timeline here. You don't know it, but the Father knows it. And I will come again to judge the living and the dead. And all injustice will be judged And those who know me and love me will live with me forever in joy and perfect peace, the way you were created to be. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus is only step one of his glory. There's the ascension, there's the session, and there's his return in power and glory when we will all see him and know him for who he is. Well, uh, we have been talking about the Apostles' Creed for weeks now, but we actually haven't affirmed the Apostles' Creed together. And if I'd have been in town this week, I'd have thought enough to put this on the screen, but it's not on the screen. So you say, how are we going to say the Apostles' Creed? It's in your bulletin. So on the right-hand side of your bulletin, uh, at the bottom are the words of the Apostles' Creed. Would you stand and affirm them with me? We're going to take a short break from the creed come back to it in a few weeks in the third paragraph, but right now let's just remind ourselves and say with joy and truth what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, And now we are ready to sing our closing hymn, which will be on the screen. And I hope that from your heart there will be a deeper sense of worship. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's sing together.